You're listening to the Third Cup of Coffee podcast. Good day, podcast listeners. Randy Bolander here on the Third Cup of Coffee. Glad to have you with me. It is a bit of an unusual episode today because things are getting more and more complicated on Sunday mornings for me. They just are. Uh, we're still teaching on Zoom. Don't have a location. It's uh, probably not the smartest idea to gather in big groups right now anyway. And so we're still teaching on Zoom, just kind of waiting on the Lord to see what he has for us. So normally I take those recordings and I incorporate them into the podcast. Well, it's gotten more and more complicated to do Zoom for a couple of reasons. One being is just we have a few more people now than we did when we started. So I'm kind of trying to juggle that. But also Zoom has a new rule that says the moderator has to let people into the room, or you can give them a password. Well, you can't give people a password because you don't know who's going to come. You know, how do you invite someone to this thing and then say, here's a password? That's just bizarre. It's weird enough to do church on Zoom, let alone to have to put in a password to get in. So I let people in as I'm going. Of course, it's typical church. Not everybody is there when you start. So I am both teaching and manning the door electronically at the same time. It would be like preaching in front of a crowd And every time someone got up to leave and come back, you had to keep preaching, but you had to go open the door for them. I'm telling you, this is not the kind of thing you can train a monkey to do. The monkey just has no patience for it. And I am increasingly have no patience for it. But I did it. All that to say, I got to the end of the message Sunday after letting people in and out of the room a number of times while not stopping teaching, which is not easy. And I realized I had not recorded the message goose egg, nothing. I hadn't recorded it. So we have nothing to play back for you. So what I'm going to do is actually just kind of talk through it um, in this format, and I think think it'll be fine. I think you'll get it. Before I dive into that, though, let me encourage you to something that you can help with significantly this Christmas. If you are looking for a project, uh, if you're looking for something to involve your kids in or teach them about and say, hey, this is something that's important to us. A couple of years ago, Kelsey and I came into contact with Jimmy and Gina Horner. Jimmy and Gina direct a group called The Mission. They are based in Mexico. They also have a base in Nicaragua and one in Romania. Orphanages. Uh, Jimmy's father started this orphanage in Mexico. They just moved down there from the Bay Area, didn't know any Spanish, didn't know anything, went down there and poured their lives into the orphans of Mexico. Now, since then... They've had 5,000 children through their orphanage, many of them for many, many years. Some of them were living on the street with absolutely no one to care. I mean, I'm talking seven, eight, nine-year-old kids living on the street. Some of them have gone on to become staff members. Most of the Horner staff members grew up as residents of the orphanage, and this is now their family. They're 30, 35 years old have kids of their own, that they're raising in godly families because the Horners have poured their lives into the mission. You can uh, learn a little bit more about them if you go to thebridgekc.church. I'll put a link on the front page there to the mission, or if you want to go directly, go to themissioninc, themissioninc.org. And we want to bless them financially. I I mean the orphans. We're going to send an offering to help them. And if you would like to help this, them this Christmas, you can send a check. Write the check to the Zoe Foundation and mail it to 8672 West 102nd Terrace, Overland Park, Kansas, 66212, 8672 West 
102nd Terrace, Overland Park, Kansas, 66212. I have been podcasting now for 40-some weeks. I've never asked you to do anything involving finances. This doesn't involve us at all. We will see none of this. We will turn around and send it directly to that orphanage in Mexico, which we probably need to do the first week of December. So if you're thinking about it, I would say jump on it. Um, if you need to reach out to me, Randy at thebridgekc.church, um, and I can give you any more information that you might need. Let's let's do something good, okay? Let's do this for Christmas. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 10. Maybe you want to hit pause and go get one, because we're going to dive through some hard words of Jesus. And it's not just that they're hard. They're especially hard because he's delivering them to them at a really uncertain time. Certain seasons do not lend themselves to certainty. You know what I'm saying? There are periods of life where it feels like nothing is certain. And this is an uncertain time for the disciples. Our uh, leadership team for the bridge met last week for about an hour, talked about some different things going forward. And among a lot of the things we were in agreement about, one was this. None of us have ever operated amidst so many unknowns in life as we are right now. Most of you know exactly what we're feeling. I mean, you're, you're right there. You were working in an office a year ago. Now maybe you're working at home. Maybe you were working and you're not working at all now. Even things like Thanksgiving become challenges to navigate as we try and figure out who is coming from where and what's safe and, and all of that. Now, we're all accustomed to juggling things we're not sure about. It's, it's called being a grown-up. But we are not sure how to operate amidst so many unknowns, about so many things that are up in the air. It's almost like if a few years ago, if we knew what would be happening in our lives right now, we would have never believed it. This has happened before the followers of Jesus, like during his earthly ministry. Have you ever wondered what was going on in the minds of the disciples when they weren't on the forefront of the stories of the gospel? Of course, we get glimpses of their thoughts in stories that mention their specific words. Perhaps Peter or John respond to a specific question. But every time that two of them featured in a story speak their mind, there's another ten in the background. And I think they're thinking things like, I did not see this coming. I had a perfectly good fishing business before I met this guy, and I made a split-second decision to follow him. And I've seen things that I could never have imagined, but what have I done? Matthew 10 is set in Jesus' second year of ministry. So not everything has happened at this point. I mean, they've seen miracles, but at this point in history, John the Baptist is still alive. A lot of the healings have not taken place. These guys have never heard the parable of the sower. At this point, nobody's walked on water that we know of. Peter has yet to even confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, they've seen a lot by Matthew 10, but there's still way more in the unknown category. If you're Jesus, what sort of call do you issue to these guys who are following you, but they're still pretty new? Some of us would say things like, verily, verily, if you follow me, it'll get easier. This will all make sense by and by. Stay by my side. You'll get a rope. You'll get a crown. If you want to make a sale, you always make it sound easy. 
Instead, in the greatest time of unknown in the disciples' lives, up till that point, it would get even stranger later, Jesus makes a strong call to heroism. He throws down the gauntlet that makes what they're about to go through sound really hard. Now, that sounds counterproductive, but throughout history, this has paid off. Smart people respond to challenges. If you dumb down the call, only the dumb double down. So Jesus lays out the call of God in their lives. He describes the worst of it, almost as if to say, do you want in on this or not? Because there's an off-ramp here. Jesus offered his friends hardship, misunderstanding, and pain. And yet the proof of history is that Jesus was right in that what he said drew them in rather than repelled them. In their heart of hearts, men and women love a call to adventure. We don't rise to mediocrity. We rise to greatness. We've seen the same thing in other scenarios through history. In 1849, there was this little ragtag band of Italian revolutionaries led by Giuseppe Garibaldi. If that is not the best Italian name in history, I don't know what is. I can't think of anything other than pizza when I hear Giuseppe Garibaldi. He overthrew the Pope and took control of Rome. A handful of the Pope's guard joined him, and with only 7,000 men, they held off the French who were coming to reestablish the power of the Catholic Church. Now, ultimately, they lost the city. They were facing almost certain death, and Garibaldi faced what was left of his troops, and he gave them this epic speech recruiting them to follow him out of the city and build a resistance force that would fight in the forests. He turned to his men and said, Soldiers, all of our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you but hunger and thirst and hardship and death. But I call on all of you who love your country to join with me. And those that were still alive flocked to him in the hundreds. Giuseppe Garibaldi was right. People rise to a challenge. If he would have just said, you know what, let's just get out of town and see what happens, who knows who would have come with him. But many came with him on that day because the challenge was strong. Men and women have always responded to more wholeheartedly to a heroic challenge than an easy path. A heroic challenge draws a different kind of person, but it also brings out the best in the average person. We rise to meet expectations. For the last several decades, we have sought to stir the hearts of men and women by making the call to Jesus easier. Come if you like. Eh, give if you want. Share Christ if you dare. Mostly focus on you and what you want, what you like, what you think. The theory was that by lowering the bar, more people would be reached. As if reaching the most people were the goal, no matter what we were calling them to. And as a result, in many places, we have created a church a mile wide and an inch deep. A river an inch deep can be diverted by any direction. And we're seeing that in the season that we're living in, just as the earth is tilting just a little bit in 2020, and people are running everywhere but to Jesus. It's because their spiritual formation carved no channel for them to stay in. In making 
following Jesus easy, we made it unappealing and ineffective. Great men and women don't respond to an easy call. It is the call of the heroic, which ultimately speaks to men's hearts. And Jesus knew that when he was preaching to the disciples in Matthew 10. We're going to look at this call, and it is both immediate to the disciples and it is telescoping, meaning it has a future truth that we hold to. We don't read the Bible just as a history book. We look at it as a road map. 2 Timothy 3.16, when it says all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, you don't train just for information's sake. You train for the future. So we read this and we say, okay, I understood what it means for the disciples. What does it mean for me? And we study this passage not only because it's where the apostles went, but it's where we are going. And where they were going included a lot of division. Because the Jesus who issues the call here in Matthew 10, he is not the precious moments praying hands character we've made him out to be. He is a troublemaker. A few verses later, he actually says in verse 34, Do not think that I've come to bring peace. I've not come to bring peace, but I've come to bring a sword. And here, Jesus, the living word, lays out how exactly things are going to be divided and what it might mean for us. Some of you in this next year will face the situations we're going to talk about. My real belief is in the coming years, maybe not too many, we'll all face these situations. So Jesus' clarity in calling us is not an audacious might happen sometimes challenge. It is the kindness of God that he speaks so clearly and so directly in Matthew 10. Let's look at verse 16. He says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's a whole lot of animals in that, isn't there? There's sheep, there's wolves, serpents, doves, to which the disciples might have responded, but what? Sending us out? What are you, what are you talking about? Jesus here is talking about their role in ministry both on the short ministry journeys he'd send them out shortly on, but even more so in the ministry that would take place after he returned to the Father. He was describing the inherent danger that there would be factors that would actively pursue them. He said, if you're going to follow me, you need to be ready. Be prepared for these things. If you fall out of a boat, don't be surprised if you get wet. If you run off a cliff, don't be shocked when gravity kicks in. And if you surrender your life to Jesus, don't be surprised when you encounter resistance. That's a spiritual reality. And he tells them it's going to require great wisdom and great innocence. Why innocent as doves? Because it would benefit their presentation of Jesus. Innocence can be very attractive to those that know they are guilty. Even at Jesus' crucifixion, the thief on the cross next to him said, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man, he has done nothing. Innocence will protect you. It will promote the story that you are living. So into this scene, where we're supposed to be both innocent and wise, Jesus issues four promises that go with the call of greatness. If you answer this call, you get these four things. This is Jesus' equivalent of the Giuseppe Garibaldi speech, where he calls people to follow him at any cost. Promise number one. He said, you're going to face persecution from the religious systems of the world. Now, after reading the New Testament for decades for ourselves, we we tend to think of the most legalistic version of the Jews that we can, persecuting the followers of Jesus. 
But just rewind for a minute. Not all of the Jews were Pharisees. And the synagogue community was one that the disciples had been a part of their entire lives, in fact, were still a part of. And Jesus wasn't telling them they'd be persecuted by some unknown group of zealots. He's describing their church family in verse 17 of Matthew 10 when he says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. This was true of the disciples everywhere they went, even though they were often very kind to the religious leaders. They went out of their way to honor them, not outrage them. And the Jews, often Jews that they knew, perhaps that they had worshipped with and grown up with, attacked them. There's a story in Acts 23 where Paul is being physically beaten. And he answers a question and somebody smacks him in the mouth, just pops him one. Paul fires off a hot reply, and he's told that he just spoke harshly to the high priest. Paul responds in verse 5 of chapter 23 of Acts, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But no matter how believers responded, they were persecuted by the people and the systems in charge because they experienced and proclaimed a life more free than the systems had room for. Jesus' promise to the disciples was this, the more free you become, the more of an irritation you will be to those who claim to have freedom but are really in bondage. That's religion. And if we're going to press into freedom and moving in what God asks, we're going to find ourselves pressed on all sides, including people who are very dear to us but are still part of this oppressive lockdown regime originally set on doing good. Here's the crazy thing. Most religious people had tremendous roots in Jesus. Nobody wakes up and thinks, you know, I'm going to become a religious oppressor, probably today. No third grader fills out the paper of what do you want to be when you grow up with the words hypocritical religious zealot. No, people just drift that way when they try and practice the form of Christianity or of religion without keeping their eyes on Jesus. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. There is a sort of a pre-Pharisee that says, yeah, it can't happen to me. I would never become that closed-minded. I would never become that hurtful. I would never go from a godly person to someone who persecutes those who have more freedom than I do. But the truth is it can happen to any of us. The dark side of tightly organized religion has always been that it trends towards a controlled atmosphere. Of course, some organization is always needed. But even the most benevolent leadership structures got to constantly ask themselves, are we fostering freedom or are we fighting for control? You know, we don't know exactly what the bridge is going to look like, the church that we're pastoring because we're starting it in times that no one has ever really done it like this before, at least not in our lifetime. But this I know, we're going to be looking at Jesus when it all comes down. Because if we take our eyes off Jesus, we go from being the ones like the disciples who risk being persecuted by religious leaders to being the religious leaders who persecute others because they have freedom that we don't know. And that is not what we're called to. So he tells them, you're going to be persecuted by the religious systems of the world. 
Then he goes on to say, you're going to face persecution from the governmental systems of the world. Jesus told his disciples that not only would the religious leaders of the day persecute him, but so would the government systems. Now, this was a unique time in Israel history. Oftentimes, in Israel, the religious and the governmental leaders were the same. But in the first century Israel, they were two different bodies. There were the religious leaders, the synagogue rabbis and the high priests that represented the religious system that would persecute them because the disciples had an element of freedom that exceeded what the old system would bear. But then there were also governmental leaders who represented the Roman government. And Israel was under occupation by the Romans. So while Israel was allowed to conduct its religion as it saw fit, that freedom only existed in as much as the secular government allowed it to operate. The Romans had overthrown the country but kept the religious structure in place because it was already adept at controlling people. The Romans thought, why do we need to recreate the wheel? The religious system has already got people under their knuckles. It was this religious group that Jesus warned them of to begin with, but then he continued in Matthew 10, 18. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Note, as soon as religion couldn't contain the followers of Jesus, the government stepped in. And Jesus told them, it's not enough that the religious folks harass you. You'll face actual persecution from the government. And it happened exactly as Jesus said it would. Christianity never received the smile or a nod from the civic body for centuries. Almost all of the disciples were murdered by the state for their connection to Jesus. Peter was crucified upside down. King Herod killed James. Thomas, doubting Thomas, was likely speared to death in India. In fact, we only have one apostle who we know for certain died of natural causes, John the Beloved. Even then, he died in exile under difficult living conditions, which is like being sick, heading to the hospital, being hit by a train on the way, and the death certificate says that you were killed by COVID. I mean, you know, it's, you say natural causes, but the, the natural causes were certainly sped up. And the list goes on. And always, if not with government involvement, certainly with government approval, government historically has not been kind to followers of Jesus. Why is that? One would think that Christians would be model citizens that you'd want to fill your country with. I mean, the apostles told them to do things like pray for their leaders, to lead peaceable and quiet lives. Jesus told his followers, pay your taxes. You would think that any government would want as many of these people in the country as they could get. They pose no threat. They're not revolutionary in that sense. And even if they were, how dangerous could they be? The first century Christians were mostly poor, uneducated, unoppressive by any standards of the world, but they made their Roman captors nervous because they would only swear allegiance to Jesus. It wasn't enough for the Romans to tax them into oblivion or keep them at a lower social strata. The Romans, like countless governmental structures since then, chose to persecute Christians because they would not bend a knee to the idea that government knew everything and had authority over their soul. Believers would serve the emperor, they just wouldn't surrender their hearts and minds. And throughout history, there have been governmental structures for whom service was not enough. They wanted to own people, including what the people felt and what they thought. 
Now, we are a long way off from Roman occupation or anything like it in the United States, but I'm seeing things now that I didn't ever think I would see in the way of government outreach and in the way of trying to control what is said and even what is thought by people. And it's not just that those ideas are gaining traction in remote parts of the world. They're becoming more and more intriguing to people in leadership here in the United States. One of the things I believe is in the relative near future for the United States is a constraint on Christian-influenced values in preparation for a constraint on the church itself. And it will be couched with making the world a more equal, better place. Very recent edition of Time magazine hailed the opportunity that COVID-19 gives us for what they and others call the Great Reset, or an overhaul of government and economy in almost every facet of life. In a series of 18 essays by government and business leaders from around the world, they describe a great reset to benefit us all as a global term to socialism, the minimization of individual rights, and the promotion of ideals that are approved by governments and forced upon people. Kengo Sekirada, CEO of Sampo Holdings in Japan, writes this, COVID-19 is a reckoning. While exacting a heavy price, it is also presenting us with the chance to safeguard our futures. We must make the most of this moment. Governments, citizens, and businesses must change their behaviors. We all must prioritize how we can contribute to building sustainable societies. In its present form, capitalism is not truly contributing to the well-being of humanity. We need to reimagine capitalism to incorporate social sustainability and people's well-being. Okay, folks, when you hear words like reimagine, understand what they really mean is redefine. And when they redefine words, they change the meaning. I'm not here to make some great defense for capitalism. I'm just saying that we're on the cusp of a massive shift in how people think about the role of government. And when that happens, how they think about religion, especially a religion as narrow in definition as Christianity, it'll be at the top of the list of things that must be controlled. Buddhism will be allowed. You can be a Buddhist and believe anything. Secularism would also be allowed because it responds to data, and the government will control the data. It's, they're just easier to manipulate than Christians will be. What will not be allowed is the same thing that was not allowed in the day of the disciples, faith in Jesus that will not bend a knee to any other entity, even if it means saving our earthly lives. So Jesus issues this call to greatness, and the greatness he calls us to will at some point stand in stark opposition to the submission that the government will demand. And when we cross that bridge, heaven will help us all. So I told you there'd be four promises. First one, you'll face persecution from religious systems of the world. Second one, you'll face persecution from governmental systems of the world. And then he drops what seems like a bit of hope. But it's really more than that. It's actually a new way to live our lives in the third promise in verses 19 and 20. And that promise is this. You will receive words in the moment. When we talk about persecution, the question we all ask ourselves is, how will I respond to this? What will I do? I don't want to get this wrong, 
and I'm not really sure I'm getting it right now. How on earth will I respond to persecution? Here's what Jesus told the disciples, Matthew 10, 19, and 20. When they deliver you over. Notice he says when. He doesn't even bother to say if. He's just like when they deliver you over. Do not be anxious about how you're to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He tells them that at that very moment that they fear, that time on the horizon when they're facing persecution, the Holy Spirit will speak through them and they'll have just the right answer. Now, it's easy to say, well, that sounds great. Could you tell me now? I mean, is there any way, God, as long as you know what they're going to say and you know what I'm going to say, could you just give me my lines before the bullets start flying so I could rehearse? And that's because we want to get it right and we don't want to fail. But God knows that if he revealed the script to us today, under pressure we would speak it out of rote memory, and he wants us to speak out of intimacy with him. Do you want to know how to hear Jesus' voice when you're under extreme pressure? Focus on hearing his voice when you're not under any pressure at all. Use this season of life to fine-tune your spirit to his so that rather than give you every reply you might ever need, he can speak quietly to your heart in the moment and you can learn to listen so you can know what it means to live out 2 Timothy 4, to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. The only way that you get those words from the Lord in times of great strain is to have cultivated intimacy with him in seasons of peace so that you can respond to the slightest move of his heart. If we don't walk with the Lord in the cool of the morning, we will never find him in the heat of the day. Time together makes all the difference. Sometimes when I talk to young couples that are engaged, I hear them say things like, oh, we know each other so well. It seems like we've been together our entire lives. And they go on and on about how their months or year or two together has prepared them so well for the next few seasons. And maybe it has, but I know this. If you've been married a few decades, you know that that young couple barely knows each other. They've experienced a little heartache, a little joy, maybe three family Christmases together, but there's going to be a point 20 years down the road that with the raise of an eyebrow, she will know what takes him three days to tell her now. Or by how she walks through a room, he will know what kind of day she has had. How do they get to read one another that well? A couple decades together will do that. Relationally, there's no substitute for doing life together day after day after day. For you to receive words to say in the moment from the Holy Spirit, you've got to know him in an intimate way that only comes with time and tenderness. So in bearable times, we live in bearable times right now. We tune our ear to Jesus so that we can hear his voice in unbearable times. There is an intimacy available in Jesus that will be near you and equip you during the greatest persecution you will ever face. And the way to have the word of the Lord in the time of need is to seek the word of the Lord day after day in your own life. He promised it to his disciples and he promises it to you. 
So he issues these three promises. You're going to be persecuted probably by religious people. You're going to be persecuted by the government. I'm going to give you words to say in the moment of persecution. And then promise number four, a life of greatness will be marked by endurance. And even this one, which is encouraging, he couches with more bad news. Matthew 10, 21 tells us brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So these final two verses include one more kind of persecution, ultimately the most difficult kind of persecution we could imagine. Bring on the religious zealots. We didn't want to be like them anyway. Bring on the governmental oppression. We're kind of born resistors. But our own family? Jesus was pointing to the fact that the apostles' life and at the end of the age, division would be so great in their midst that even among family members, there'd be great hatred and anger because those who do not submit to Christ will take great issue with those who do. Now, he doesn't get too far into the details, but he warns them. It may come down to choosing between family and Jesus. And even if you try and hold it all together for family's sake, the rest of the family may make the choice for you. I read an editorial on CNN the other day entitled, My Family Chose, then it named a political leader, over me. My family chose that leader over me. The writer went on to write at length about how he could not bear to be around them because of their political beliefs, but he presented himself as the outcast. When you read it, it's not clear that they rejected him, but he chose to separate from them, and he blamed it on their political convictions. That will increase by a factor of 10 over feelings about things like truth and the gospel. In the event of that pain, Jesus promises what he promises all those that are persecuted. If they endure to the end, there is great reward. You know, I have been so encouraged by people in the last year, just watching how they have navigated so many unknowns. I've got five or six pastor friends that I talk to every other week or so at least, and they, all of us going, boy, we don't know what we're doing next, but the Lord is faithful. And I see it among the church as well. There's greatness among us. Hopefully there's greatness in us. But to reveal that, it's going to take pressure. Diamonds are lumps of coal that have endured great pressure on all sides. And most of us feel more like a lump of coal right now than a diamond. Jesus says, don't worry. The right amount of pressure is on its way. And with it, grace to endure, to stand with him through anything. What is the hope in all this? Intimacy with Jesus, an eternal being who will never turn his back on us and will always be counted on to be faithful. If I wanted to know you as best I possibly could, I would ask those who have been around you the longest. And there's this crazy group of people, or beings rather, in Revelation 5. We don't have real clarity on who they are, but they have been where they are in his presence for some time. They know him better than we do. In verses 12 through 14, it says they said with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth 
and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then John hears, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them crying out the same phrase, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Friends, let me tell you, he is worth it. And when he calls us, we answer the call and we join him in what he is doing and we are honored to be invited. I am thankful this Thanksgiving season for how he has led my family in the last year. It has not been easy. I was thinking this morning, I stopped at Target and ran in to get some things. And a year ago, the chaos and anxiety was so high in my life that going to Target to pick up milk meant that I would have to put in earbuds and listen to this ambient, soothing music and talk myself through Target. I'm not kidding. I was a mess. I was afraid I would see someone and they would ask me how I was doing or I would see someone and they wouldn't ask how I was doing. I was a train wreck. Our family was fine. There were external forces at work. And I stopped at Target and I ran into Target and grabbed some things and I thought, God has been so faithful. I am so thankful that as long as we have stood by his side, he has stood by ours. And I know the same is true for you. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll talk to you next week on the third cup of coffee.